Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. There's no doubt that climate change is an urgent threat to humanity. Its impacts will have important consequences for human life, financial stability, and the global economy at large. Given its importance, politicians, businesses, and investors will all need to play a role in confronting climate change. And as we shift towards a low-carbon, climate-resilient economy, sustainability is becoming an important driver of economic growth. For long-term investors, investing in sustainability not only provides growth opportunities, but also allows them to direct capital towards building a cleaner and more sustainable world. To discuss these issues, I'm very glad to be joined today by Sarah Kapnick, Senior Climate Science and Sustainability Strategist here at JP Morgan. So Sarah, welcome to Insights Now. Thank you for having me. So to start with, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just released an alarming report on global warming. Can you share some of the key findings from that report and what you think their implications are for climate change? Yes. I see the report as having two big takeaways. Previous reports were more tepid in their statements. The very first one in 1990 explained a theoretical and modeling basis for climate change, but said that the IPCC could not yet confirm human-caused climate change was happening. This recent report, the sixth in its series, strongly confirms human-caused climate change, stating that human influence on climate is unequivocal in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, which means frozen water, and biosphere, plants and animal life. It's comprehensive and important how the recent decades have proven climate change. Every one of the last four decades has been hotter than the last. The warming rate is unprecedented in more than 2,000 years, and it's one of the warmest multi-century periods in more than 100,000 years. There's been 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming worldwide since the Industrial Revolution. That may not seem like a lot, but then if you start looking at the impacts that that has, it has an outsized impacts on regional climate where people actually live, increasing the frequency and severity of precipitation extremes, of heat waves, and of drought. This report also provides a projection of how frequency and severity of changes will grow with future greenhouse gas emissions, and it provides guidance to understand what the future world may end up in. Every ton of CO2 emissions adds to global warming. So some examples of how these risks are increasing. A 1 in 10 year heat event today is 2.8 times more likely in the past. But if you go up to a world where you have warming of 2 degrees Celsius, it becomes 5.6 times more likely. If you jump to 4 degrees Celsius, it becomes almost 10 times more likely. So an event that used to be a 1 in 10 year event becomes an event almost every single year. So you're moving these events of really, really extreme, unlikely, to being things that become commonplaces. When reading through the report, it provides scientific evidence of how the world will change with all of the additional emissions. 
with increased risk for heat waves, longer, more severe droughts, loss of ice, um, sorry, ice, sea ice in the Arctic, um, with it almost ice-free in the summer and almost all but the most aggressive emissions reductions pathways. There are increases in extreme precipitation. Global sea level is expected to rise by half to one full meter by 2100. But due to the fact that, that land ice and oceans take a lot longer to respond to climate change, that sea level rise will continue over the next several centuries, rising by several several meters by 2300. Additionally, there's some other changes that aren't talked about a lot, including increased risk for marine heat waves where ocean temperatures spike and reductions in dissolved oxygen. Both are really important metrics for fisheries health. So this report gives us a physical science basis of climate change, and it's a lot. Talking about it can be doom and gloom, thinking about what the next century holds. But it also shows the importance and the impact of action. Emissions reductions are the only way to stop most changes and are critical in the coming decades to avoid the worst outcomes. Every increment of avoided emissions will reduce the impact of future climate change. The goal of this report is to provide scientific basis for the upcoming COP26 meetings this November, where countries will negotiate plans for emissions reductions. There will be two additional reports that will give more guidance on action that will come out in early 2022. One of them is how to reduce emissions through mitigation, and the other one is how to reduce climate impacts through adaptation. So Sarah, your, your research uh, actually describes this, this impact of climate change right now in the U.S. Uh, you've just published a paper on the Western U.S. droughts. Can you highlight the dynamics there and, and a few specific examples? Yes. If you didn't grow up in the West, it's really hard to comprehend what's happening. In the Western U.S., rain only falls between November and March. There was a massive reservoir system that was built to deal with flood risk, but also to provide water security in the West to capture the water that occurs during wet years and be able to redistribute it across the West for human activities. The reason this drought is so severe is that reservoirs are now at all-time lows um, since they were filled. A 2020 science paper showed that 2000 to 2018 was the second driest period in 1,200 years. You only have to go back to the 1500s to be able to find a drier period. But recently, in the last few years, it's gotten even drier. Scientists call these droughts mega droughts, as they can last three to four decades and have in the past. So right now we're starting the third decade of drought. In the Western U.S. right now, 64% of Western states are experiencing extreme to exceptional drought, up from 5% last summer. And last summer was also a drought year. Major reservoirs in California are below 50%, and the two largest in the U.S., Lake Mead and Lake Powell, are at their all-time lows. So what happens if this continues? So if this continues, it leads to all sorts of impacts due to the lack of water. In California and southern and other states, they're exposed to hydropower, there could be hydropower outages and losses of hydropower. Already in California, Lake Oroville, the second largest reservoir in California, had to shut down only two weeks ago because there wasn't enough water to produce hydropower. In California, there's also a $30 billion fruit, vegetable, and nut crop. Due to the water shortages, they're having to reduce water flows for irrigation, and they've made an emergency 
contingency plans in Northern California, not allowing withdrawals from rivers and streams. So as a result, ground is being left fallow. They're not planting or they're ripping out plants that they already have. In Arizona, which gets its water from the lower Colorado River, they're also facing major cuts that could happen later this year due to the lack of water, which also is another major agricultural region, particularly in the winter when other parts of the United States are not producing produce. All this drought also increases the risk for wildfires. In 2020, we saw the largest wildfire season on record in California. Already in 2021, right now, there's a wildfire in California that is the second largest on record, and it's only partially contained. The insurance and real estate markets are also adapting to new climate change risks. These increased wildfires and severe wildfires many years in a row are starting to put pressure on the ability to obtain insurance for wildfires in California. And there's actually been review of how catastrophe insurance should be structured going forward due to increased climate change risks. So, so we, you know, we're talking about insurance costs rising here, but also clearly the you know a large chunk of U.S. agriculture experiencing some some impacts here. And I know that one of the things our clients are particularly concerned about right now um, is inflation. Um, do you think there's all this does have a meaningful impact on inflation? This can all drive up agriculture prices in response to both scarcity as production declines due to the lack of water, but also rising costs due to the water needs. If farms want to have water to be able to continue producing, they either need to drill down deep into groundwater to access groundwater to be able to water their their plants, or they need to purchase water delivery. There's actual trucks that will go and will bring water to the agricultural regions to be able to provide them with the water that they need for their plants. Like so this drives off costs. It. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, they will do anything to be able to continue to produce. And so uh, all of those activities, though, either the groundwater pumping, if they're able to access groundwater, um, as well as the water delivery through trucks, that's all a cost. And so those costs are also driving up the cost of doing agriculture in these regions. So both scarcity as well as costs are driving up Uh, potential for driving up inflation. And we're actually already seeing rising inflation in agricultural metrics in the United States. And so, well, so the problems are pretty clear here. Um, Let's let's talk about some solutions here. To start with, let's let's look at policymakers. To what extent does the new U.S. infrastructure package, which may pass Congress later this year, or the budget reconciliation bill, which will probably, you know, may also pass Congress, or, or other parts of the agenda of the current administration, to what extent can they help with the climate issues? And are there successful policy examples on a local level? The infrastructure proposal has funding to mitigate climate change through the reduction of emissions. There are several different items that they've put in there. There's $7.5 billion to build a network of electric vehicle chargers, which is critical to be able to move from cars based on gasoline and diesel to electricity. There's $28 billion for power grid infrastructure, but also resilience and reliability. After what we saw in Texas last winter, there's a need for the grid to be resilient against major weather events. The Department of Energy even created a new grid development authority in the infrastructure package to reduce red tape to speed the development of the grid. Because 
the sheer amount of infrastructure that needs to happen in the next 10 years if we want to be on a path to net zero requires massive investment and fast construction of these new grids and new electrical supply uh, that is lower emissions. There's also $3.5 billion for carbon capture and the development of regional hubs around the U.S. scale technologies. So this goal is to remove carbon dioxide either from existing power plants um, or figuring out also how to uh, remove carbon directly from the atmosphere. There's also $8 billion for hydrogen R&D. So hydrogen is a completely different fuel source. Uh, Toyota was one that was trying to develop hydrogen fuel cells for cars. So it's a, another alternative for being able to uh, produce power for transportation. There's also $39 billion for public transit and trying to green public transit systems and try and encourage use of public transit, which increases the efficiency of energy for transportation. And there's $50 billion for resilience and climate change adaptation. So it's not enough just to do mitigation. We also need adaptation because the changes of climate are still going to happen no matter what uh, we do over the next few years. In the budget reconciliation, one of the most impactful items is a clean energy standard. This pushes the utilities in the U.S. to ramp up clean energy aggressively. At the local level, clean energy standards are actually developing in states across the United States as states are trying to reduce the amount of emissions coming from their states. And I'll say the complexity of climate change and the sources of emissions are not going to be solved with a single proposal, either a single proposal at the federal level or at the local level. It will take transforming all sectors and reducing emissions. As that was, out, that was also clearly outlined in the recent IPCC report, that all emissions reductions matter. Additionally to emissions reductions, we also need adaptation to climate change. And I think that will increasingly be a focus of future funding and future packages of figuring out how to respond to climate change and how to adapt to the changes that we are already seeing baked in. So sticking at the, um, at the policy level, I mean, you've outlined there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline. We don't know if it's all going to make it into the final legislation. Um, but... Are these, is this enough? I mean, what kind of policy responses do we need to make in order to actually see make meaningful progress here? Um, or, do you, or do you look at it from that perspective? Yeah, I see a clean energy standard as a first major important step because utilities and energy production produce a large percentage of the emissions. But then going beyond that, that's not enough. We also need energy efficiency standards. So there's some local policies for energy efficiency in buildings coming out. There's one in, in New York City, actually, that is going to push commercial buildings towards better energy efficiency. There's also discussions around how, how do you regulate carbon in general? So there's questions of carbon tax or carbon cap and trade. And we're seeing this play out worldwide. Worldwide, different countries are choosing cap and trade or they're choosing a carbon tax like China actually has just recently instituted a cap and trade for carbon. We also need things uh, to remove carbon. And those technologies don't exist yet at scale that can remove carbon from the atmosphere. But we do have the technology of forests and mangroves and wetlands and kelp farms. These nature-based solutions are another way to actually sequester carbon in the in nature. However, alone, nature-based solutions cannot take all of the emissions that we have. So 
in summary, we need it all. So we need it all at a policy level, but even at an individual level. I mean, I know that a lot of people are genu- you know, very genuinely worried for the future of the planet and, and what all this means. What can individuals do, either as individual consumers or workers or as investors, what can they do to try and help with this issue? So individuals through investing, I think, have a tremendous amount of power right now. All the things I mentioned require investment. These new technologies that need to grow that provide us with solutions for emissions reductions or for climate adaptation are critical. For the problems that I talked about, for the drought for the Western United States, we need agricultural technologies to develop. We need water efficiency technologies. We need power. We need new different types of power because unfortunately hydropower won't be enough in times of drought to be able to reliably provide power source. So there's many different things that need to be supported uh, and it's a matter of choosing what matters to you. Additionally, through other personal actions, we can actually do things to retrofit our houses to reduce the risk of wildfire. And also one of the other things that I always tell people that they can do individually is to vote in local and fe- local state federal elections, because that is a way to have larger impact than yourself alone. Yeah, and and thinking about this also from the investment perspective, is there a danger that capital just flows to those projects which provide the potential best rate of return for you know dealing with or addressing sustainable issues without actually addressing climate change and the cause of climate change in the most effective way i agree with you i do worry about this a lot much of the focus to date in climate finance has been only on clean energy approximately 90 to 95% of all the funding has been towards clean energy and carbon mitigation. But we need to expand beyond that. We need to be looking at energy efficiency and we need to look at technologies that can reduce emissions through other sources like cements or industrial processes. So, and additionally beyond emissions reductions, we also need adaptation because climate change is going to still continue no matter what. Uh, because the Earth system takes decades to respond to the emissions already put up in the air. And so we will need all of it. Um, And even beyond this, uh, something that's starting to be talked about more and more in Europe and the Biden administration is starting to pick up on is this idea of a just transition. So it's not enough just to start investing in these companies and hope that there is a transition, but there also needs to be investment in communities and community resilience um, and society to be able to deal with these problems because that will improve the resiliency of society to bounce back after uh, damaging major climate events. So getting down to some, some of the details here, what are some of the opportunities from a technology or innovation standpoint that are either exist today or will need to be developed further to battle climate change? So for water, we need innovations and development around infrastructure projects, water recycling, efficiency, treatment, and purification technologies. For agriculture, we need to be able to produce more with less water, or we need to be able to produce agriculture in regions that we traditionally haven't. So California and Arizona right now they're deserts, large parts of them. And we've been growing produce in them and having agriculture because we have access to water and because it's sunny and temperate year round. If there is less water, we may not be able to 
continue to have the production capabilities in the West in the future. So we need to be able to produce agriculture in other parts of the country. Um, this is why there's been a growing interest in vertical farming and new types of farming techniques that can be able to do more with less in new locations. For renewables, uh, hydropower is once a reliable source of renewable technology in the West, and it won't necessarily in the future with drought. So we need deployment of other energy source, clean energy sources to be able to meet clean energy standards and to be able to reduce emissions in the West. Other technologies also are carbon removal. If we hope to reduce emissions and get to net zero, we also need carbon removal technologies to scale. And with that too, hopefully there will also be new market-based techniques or financial structures to be able to invest in nature-based solutions. These solutions of mangroves and trees and wetlands, which give us multiple benefits. They give us carbon sequestration, protection of coastlines because mangroves are able to absorb some of the strength of storm surge, so then it causes less erosion and less flooding inland. It also produces these nature-based solutions are also important for the conservation of land, ocean, and biodiversity, and the preservation of nature. And and so, I mean, it does sound like that. that's one of the reasons why carbon credits are such an important part of this, because while at, at first glance, it might seem like you're, you're just uh, paying off somebody else to, 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 to deal with your problem, it does create a market for these carbon mitigation techniques. And, you know, given some of the amazing advances we've seen in the biotech industry and in biology in general, there are there are ways of mitigating carbon in the atmosphere that, that really would not get explored without this market being created artificially through carbon uh, through um, uh, carbon credits. So there is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of logic behind the whole idea of a system of carbon credits around the world. Yeah, I'm really excited about this as a way that we can actually preserve nature and have a financial mechanism to do it. It's a bundling of all of these benefits that can happen. Something that concerns me is if the standards don't develop to actually be able to deliver on all the other benefits. And so I think it's really important that the development of protocols and standards around carbon credits exist. And we also really need to remember that carbon offsets are not enough. They will, there is a physical limit to the amount of trees that can be planted, the mangroves, the kelp farms, the full. And so it, it's not the solution, but it's something that needs to be considered and to be brought along with all of the other solutions in our toolkit that we need to start exploring and deploying to be able to get to a low carbon, low emission world. And reach it. And that sort of brings us back to a little bit where we started in, in terms of the you know, the outlook for global warming, because the reality is, and we have to live in a world of reality, the reality is that even if we got to net zero emissions at some stage in the future, we're still going to have to deal with the, the you know, the reality of global climate change for, for a, a long time to come, further, you know, beyond our lifetimes and our children's lifetimes. So how can we prepare for a changing world? So there's ways to retrofit homes. In my report, I talk about how there are new standards for retrofitting your home if you live in the urban wildland interface. So if you live close to where wildfires can happen, you can reduce the risk for your house actually burning down by changing out the roof is one simple way. Uh, if you don't have a combustible roof, then an ember falling on your home can't burn down your house. 
if you live in places that are flood prone, houses are being put on stilts. Um, we're seeing this in Florida where houses that as they are removed for when someone's building a new house in Miami or elsewhere, they're putting, they're raising their house. So it's less likely to flood during a future storm surge. I think that we'll see changes in building codes and other construction techniques around resiliency starting to become policies around the U.S. and around the world to try and deal with this. Um, so people will be thinking about adapting as climate change continues to happen. And it will be a transformative couple of decades for us as we see the world transform as people try to both mitigate climate change as well as adapt to it. So it's not just climate change is impacting profoundly our, our physical environment. It's also actually going to be changing the investment environment going forward. And, and the, you know, I think our great goal here is to try to help investors contribute to solutions and take advantage of solutions um, and also not get uh, steamrolled by some inevitable change that, that, that is coming despite everybody's best efforts. So, um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This is, is a fascinating discussion. We could obviously have talked about it for, for much longer. Please tune into our next episode when I'll be joined by my colleague Mira Pandit, global market strategist here at JP Morgan Asset Management, for a discussion on the latest infrastructure bill and the outlook for further fiscal stimulus. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.